Hey all, my name is Dr. Adnan Rasool. Um, I am an assistant professor of political science at University of Tennessee at Martin, and welcome to the UN Experiential Fellowship Program. Now, I, I want to I want to say this and admit this upfront. I've tried recording this video at least twice, and for some reason, uh, my computer and the devices I've been using have not worked out. So this is a very well rehearsed version of these things. And I'm going to try and stick to the point on this one. Um, okay, so first off, what we're trying to discuss today is a discussion on how data-driven policymaking and development um, intervention is becoming the norm of the world that we live in. Now, uh, originally, frankly speaking, I thought about giving you a long lecture on what data is and why it's important and how do we collect good data or bad data and how, what kind of shortfalls do we need to be avoiding and after having done that twice already in the videos that didn't really pan out, this is what I've learned. Data is super important for writing policy. Um, there are certain things that you need to know, and I'm going to tell you those things. What I'm going to tell you also is there is nothing that beats repetition. When we do something again and again and again, every time we find different information. Also what we find are trends. The reason we love data to begin with, within policymaking and development uh, initiatives or interventions, is because data gives us patterns. Data is tried and tested method for us as policymakers or teachers, uh, or just generally people who are discussing stuff to figure out exactly how things work. It gives us some sort of a trend. Uh, and that's what we want to do. So upfront, let me be very clear on what data is. Data is not something super complicated. Data is simply taking information and cataloging it and categorizing it in a certain manner. Everything is data. Everything you do from the time you wake up in the morning is a data point. All we are trying to do is collect relevant data for the problem that we're trying to address. The second thing that I want to really talk about and focus on for all of you is there is a very big misconception that believes that somehow data is the answer. That's not true. Data is the question. In order for you to have a good answer, you need to write a really good question. If you cannot write a good question, you will never have a good answer. And that is where data comes in. Data helps us write a question. Data doesn't really help us answer that question. What helps us answer that question is the intervention or the policy that we write based on the evidence provided by the data within the question we asked in the first place. Now, I know that is counterintuitive, and I, I want you to stick with me on this one. Normally, right around here, I give you a narrative story of telling you some of my experiences on working within the field and collecting data and trying to figure out exactly how it works. Let me just skip over all of that. Let me tell you my frustrations, which will help you understand these things much better. So majority of the times when within the policy world, 
I used to work in the policy world. I used to work in development. I spent about 10 years in development. Um, I worked in Africa. I worked in Southeast Asia. I worked in the Middle East. I have worked pretty much on nearly every continent in one shape or form except South America. All of that came down to me working with the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the Asian Development Bank, the USAID, and the United Nations. Uh, in all of my experiences, what I've learned with regards to asking the right questions and data analysis and so on and so forth is we tend to use data the exact opposite way. We tend to use data from the perspective of providing evidence for something. The reality is majority of the times we need to use data in order to ask the right questions. Every year we waste a ton of money, not just as part of the international um, community or international development mechanisms, even as countries, we waste a lot of money designing policies, designing social programs, which are absolutely useless because they don't address the need. And that means the person who was designing them or the team that was designing them did not ask the right questions. They did not gather the right information and they did not translate that information into what was required. Now, in that case, what we're dealing with is data being used in the worst possible way. Every piece of information that's out there is some form of data. There is good data, there is bad data. What makes it good or bad data is the context in which it is used. And that is why I keep coming back to the same thing that I've said earlier, asking the right questions. As long as your questions are right, you're going to be able to do things the right way. Now, that being said, let's start asking a different question. Why do I care about data? Why do I care about data in policymaking? And why do I care about data in development? That's honestly the question that we should be asking. And the answer to that question is super complicated, yet super simple. We care because if we're designing different forms of policies and if we're designing different forms of development initiatives and all of them are never going to address the need that we're designing them for what's the point like we're wasting money we're burning money in essence then using data to design policy and design development initiatives all we're really trying to do is create efficiencies and actually address the issues that we're dealing with. Let me give you a very simple example. We always have this discussion in the US <clears throat> that we should get rid of student loans. We should get rid of this, we should get rid of that. And that's a wonderful discussion to have. But here's the thing that we never kind of dig into. Saying that we should get rid of student loan is a really good statement. The question then is, why don't we get rid of student loans? Because that's where the information is hidden, right? Why don't we get rid of student loans? Well, we can't get rid of student loans because somebody has to sit down and answer another question first, which is, who owns the student loans? Because think about it, right? And the Stick with me on this for a second. I'm, I'm taking you on a journey and it will make sense in about five minutes from now. So who owns student loans? Let, let's think about this for five minutes. 
you are given student loans based on the federal government's guarantee, right? Like you apply for FAFSA, FAFSA gives you a student loan. Who essentially is underwriting your student loan? The federal government, right? Now, your student loan might be issued by a lender and that lender might be private. Your student loan also might be issued by a lender that is partly owned by the government, as in, you know, Sally May or one of those large institutions that the government bailed out in 2008. Number two, who do you pay money back to under your student loans? Are you paying it back to the lender or are you paying it back to the government? Because here's the thing, if you're paying your money back to the lender, the lender is paying a big chunk of that money back to the government. In essence then, aren't you paying back the government? And if you're paying back the government, would that not mean that your student loan is an investment as far as the federal government is concerned? And if they're the ones underwriting it, and if they're the ones who are getting paid from it, do you not then think that your student loan is actually an asset for the federal government? Once you actually break it down to this level, the question is not, why don't we get rid of student loans? The question comes down to the fact, why should the federal government give up on assets that help make money? And why should the federal government give up on such a massive amount of assets, which might be over a trillion dollars, for the sake of making people, very few people, happy because please remember majority of the Americans never actually went to college. So even when we're talking about student loans and government giving up its assets, we're talking about a very small group of people. And if I were a person who was designing policy based on these notions, the question that I would be asking is, does it make sense for me to get rid of government assets upwards of a trillion dollars in order to make maybe 35% of the population in this country happy. Is that worth it? And if you stuck with me on this journey throughout, you would see where we started from and where we ended up with. You might have had a very different opinion about all of this when we started out asking this question. You might have a completely different opinion of it right now where we're ending where I've translated that question into simply asking you the fact that do you want the federal government to lose a trillion dollars worth of assets to make 25 or 30% of this country happy? Does it make sense or is it even worth it? This is where data comes in. How you use it, how you manipulate it, how you support your notions with it determines the outcome. Policy making can never be done in a vacuum. A lot of the times when we're trying to make policies, it's extremely painful and difficult to get down to the nitty gritty of things. It sounds amazing to have these populist ideas. The problem is, and it's not just the US, problem is in every country across the face of this earth, we're going to face some sort of a blowback. And understanding that blowback is a responsibility that we have as policymakers. It's not the responsibility of the public to let us know all of those things. Public is fundamentally reactionary. 
our job, the reason we get paid money is because we are able to anticipate those problems and understand the needs of policy consumers when even they don't fully understand the needs of the policies and the development initiatives that we're making. And let me give you another example of this. <clears throat> 14 years ago, 14, 15, mm, let's say 15 years ago, Vodafone, a massive telecom company in um, majority of Africa and Europe, um, came to Kenya and this they had this crazy idea at that time um, that majority of Kenyans don't actually live in the cities. Uh, majority of the Kenyans live in villages. Majority of the Kenyans don't have access to the internet. Majority of the Kenyans also do not have a bank account. So what we're going to do instead is come up with a system uh, where Kenyans are going to be able to have access to bank accounts and Kenyans are going to be able to send and receive money from each other without actually having a bank account internet, any of that stuff. And I remember because I was working at the UN at that point of time, we looked them straight in the eye and half of us laughed and the other half of us were like, how? Like, how are you going to do this? And I was fascinated. I wanted to understand how would you do this? Because at that point of time, the only understanding of transferring money that we had was based on the fact that you could use PayPal. That, that was it. You either need a bank account or you have PayPal. Um, and Vodafone had a, a super simple idea. Like it wasn't fancy. It wasn't, you know, like cutting edge. Majority of the times when we have these solutions or these policy ideas or even development concepts, there are always these cutting edge ideas like we'll do this, we'll build this, and then we'll train 50 people, and then this will happen. No. Vodafone's idea was so dumb that it was actually brilliant. And Vodafone's idea was your phone number is already registered based on your ID card, right? Yeah. Your phone number is now your bank account. Okay, so your phone number is your bank account, great. How are we going to do the whole money thing? They're like, simple. Um, people already buy scratch cards to fill up their accounts, and people normally buy those scratch cards from corner stores, in villages, in cities, everywhere you go. There's always a corner store selling cigarettes, uh, drinks, or something on those lines. Um, and they always sell cell phone credit. And we were like, yeah, that, that story also checks out. And they're like, yeah, that's how we'll do it. If you want to send money somewhere, you will send them a text and they'll take that text to the shopkeeper and the shopkeeper is going to give them money and the shopkeeper is going to send us a text code over SMS and confirm that he already gave that money and that would allow us to deduct money from your account as in whatever money that you have left charged to your phone number will deduct that. So if there is $400 on your account and you've given somebody 150, we'll deduct 150 out of it. 
and if you go into negative your phone shuts down and then you have to pay that money anyways and because every person can only get one cell phone number um you're kind of stuck with it you can't just cancel yourself out i'm like yeah that that makes total sense and that's where the idea of electronic funds transfer um using your cell phone for transactions and using your cell phone to send and receive money came from it wasn't some high-tech american firm wasn't some high-tech european firm it was a bunch of people in kenya um, who lived in nairobi and wanted to send money to kasumu and they were frustrated and all of them happened to be working for a telecom company and they came up with the simplest solution on earth and the reason i gave you the story is because ask the right questions you get the right answers. And this is where data comes in, again and again and again. Now, in order to address that situation, the data they could have collected was the number of banks that are there. They could have looked at how many times people send and receive money from each other, how much money they could make out of it, how would they do any of those things. They could have done all of that. They could have opened up a mini bank for everyone. They could have created all of these wonderful things. But instead, they chose to use the infrastructure that was already in place. They chose to use the technology that was already in place. They chose eventually to use a system which needed no upgrade. It didn't need to be 5G or 4G. It didn't need to be LTE. No, SMS. People don't need a $600 phone in order to send and receive money from each other. They can use any phone. And that is where the brilliance within policymaking and development comes in. When you're designing policy, it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. It doesn't have to be pretty. It has to be basic and it needs to get the job done. And as long as you can design policy based on that, it works. And let me give you another example of that. When the pandemic hit in March, the number one problem that people faced was they had no employment. They lost their jobs or they were not getting paid. Now, we could have given them tax cuts that would have helped them, or we could have just given them direct money. And at that point of time, the idea of sending them money directly sounded like the, the most idiotic idea on earth. But it was the most effective idea. That's what the Canadians did. Send everybody $2,000 a month for, for as long as the pandemic is around. Canadian economy didn't get ahead. US did that once. Our economy actually came back roaring for a few months before the money ran out again. The point I'm trying to make is sometimes designing policy comes down to doing the bare minimum and sticking to the basics and not trying to be fancy. And at that point of time, as well as any other point of time. The kind of data that you need and the kind of evidence that you're working with is not to justify your actions. It is to drive your actions. I've given you examples that kind of show all of that stuff. And my hope is you're, you're gaining something out of it. Now, instead of me just going on and on and on about these things, what I'm trying to do and what I intend to do here is go through the questions that um, some of you sent to me. Now, let's start out uh, with the question sent by Margaret out of North Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Uh, Margaret, you asked why is it still so hard to get quality data to drive development policy decisions? What can be done to improve this? Um, teach people research methodology, not lying. Uh, just now what I told you guys, I essentially said that data does not drive policy. Data drives a really good question that helps you write better policy. People need to take research methodology. Um, majority of the times what we have as policy makers or policy designers, the biggest challenge frankly comes down to the fact that people want something snazzy and something fancy. Um, people want to pour money into something that theoretically sounds like a great idea, but it might not be the most practical thing on earth. Uh, what we need a lot more of is people to understand that you need to figure out the context of doing things and ask the right questions. People are not trained to ask the right questions. In majority of the cases, that's why they walk out there and start asking questions that have no relevance on what we're trying to fix. And if you're starting out from a bad place, you'll end up at a bad place. That means the quality of data that they're getting is kind of either completely irrelevant or low quality. How do we fix it? We teach people research methodology in university. Like, make it mandatory for people to understand that. The second thing, make it mandatory for people to have critical thinking skills. Like, let's go back to the simple example. Student loans, right? We started out talking about student loans should be written off something apparently which is super popular with everyone, right? And then we ended up by asking questions, we ended up at a question which was, should the government give up a trillion dollar worth of assets to satisfy the need of 25 to 30% of the population? The ability to jump from here to here, that's something that we're missing. And that's part and parcel of our educational system's uh, fault. We don't train people to be critical thinkers. Uh, phenomenal schools, and if you run into really fun teachers, will help you down that path. And that's frankly why you're doing this fellowship in the first place, is to help you think differently. Um, because if you start looking at things from a structural perspective, as in everything is built on something else, if you can take it apart and put it back up again, especially when you're talking about policy, it, it changes how you approach things. Um, learning how to talk to people, learning how to listen, learning stories, all of that stuff makes a huge difference in life. And that's what we're after. So I hope that answers your question because the next question is actually fairly similar to this. Um, Doha uh, in Lawrence, Kansas is asking, how do we successfully collect data and use it in a way that makes the most out of the collected information in turn give back the most development? Though successfully collecting data comes down to the kind of data that you want to collect. Simple. Um, how do you make the most out of it? Comes down to making sure when you're collecting data you're you're collecting the context of data let me explain so when i ask you just randomly speaking when i ask you it's like so how many glasses of water do you have in a day <clears throat> your answer is a data point right now i can ask 50 people the same question and i can give you an average of how much people drink uh, in a day this is what that data is missing 
that data is not accounting for what time of the year this question is being asked. Was it during the winters? Was it during the summers? I'm also not asking exactly what kind of water you're drinking. Are you drinking mineral water, bottled water, tap water? What kind of water are you using? I'm also not asking you the question, do you have access to water? I am not asking you any of those things. I'm simply asking you how many glasses of water you're drinking. Because I'm missing the context, because I'm missing the complete picture, if you say you drink three glasses of water, I don't have anything beyond the fact the number three is there. And I can average it out across 100 people and give you an average that people already drink a lot of water or people shouldn't be drinking more water than this or people are not drinking enough water. <laughs> but if I had context, I could give you a whole story. I could give you the story with more information like, hey, people in winters tend to drink a lot less water and maybe during winters we need to encourage people to drink more water. People already drink a lot of water during summers. Maybe we should try and improve accessibility of clean water for everyone in summers. Like, you know, have public stalls for uh, water. And in winter, we don't really need that. Instead, we should spend the same amount of money on an advocacy campaign to kind of convince people to drink water. Uh, now, that information is going to give you a more holistic policy. It's going to give you a multi-pronged policy which is relevant per season. If I ask you the simple question, how many water uh, glasses of water do you drink and you said three and the average was five, my policy would be, yeah, we need to convince people to drink more water. We should just basically have an advertising campaign that says drink more water. Goes back to the same thing. Ask the right questions get the right answers. If you don't ask the right questions, you will never get the right answers. And context is key, always. I hope that answered your question. And if, if it didn't, and if you want to have more uh, discussion on these things, both Margaret and Doha, and essentially everybody else who asked me questions as well, um, reach out to me, folks. Like I, I'm fairly accessible. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, you can ask me questions on Twitter, my students do, um, or you can email me and I, I'll get back to you as soon as I humanly can. Um, next up, I'm going to go with the question sent in by Maud. And forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. My apologies in advance. Um, from Massachusetts and they're asking, I'm familiar with the dangers of data telling a single story. How do you navigate this challenge within political research? Um, it's hard, not gonna lie. Um, it's complicated, it's difficult, but the best way around this I can come up with is having conversations with a lot of people. And by that, I mean having conversations with all kinds of people. Um, because a lot of the times the data is telling you a singular story, but what you probably are missing then is the context of those stories. And every time you have a conversation, um, there's going to be a little bit more context to it. I am a big believer on qualitative data. I, I, I realize quantitative data is super easy and that's why people like it a lot. I just think 
quantitative data gives us no insight and no context. And when context is not there and they're, they're very limited insights, it creates a problem when we're trying to address big ticket items. So if it was up to me, I would ask different kinds of people. I will have conversations across the board. I would have conversations with people uh, from different strata in life and try to understand the perspective based on their situation. And then instead of looking at the data telling a story, I would look at their context telling me a story and how that is correlated. So for instance, if you're, if you're a person who's living in a rural area, there is a certain amount of infatuation you have with weapons. Um, so where I live, out here, people are extremely, extremely into hunting. Um, and because everybody's into hunting and it's it's a very important part of our culture out here, the support for the Second Amendment is extremely high. Um, people will not discuss losing their weapons or having any sort of constriction on their weapons at all. And that's the story that you always hear. Like People in these red states will never give up their weapons because they are, you know, they love violence. No, they don't. It's because in our region, specifically in West Tennessee, everybody's a hunter. Even if you're not a hunter and you move out here, you want to become one because everybody's a hunter. Um, and you can't really go hunting without guns. And because you do these things, because you have these moments, um, that context becomes important to understand. And then your debate and your discussion comes down to the context itself instead of having a debate or a discussion on um, what the data point says. The data point simply says, people in red states love weapons. Adding context explains to you, well, it's not across the board. There are some of them, they love them for these reasons. There are others who love it for these reasons. Like for instance, people in Memphis have weapons. They're very supportive of having weapons. Uh, it's not because Memphis, all of it goes hunting. No, Memphis is one of the most dangerous places you'll ever go to. And the crime rate is through the roof. And that's why people in Memphis would like to keep weapons. That's not the problem for us. Ours, we just like weapons out here because um, hunting. And that's it. So the context changes the story. Take the context into account. I hope that answers your question. I'm going to jump over to the question uh, by Cecilia from Chicago. Uh, Cecilia wants to know how can data serve to convince individuals of the dangers of a disease? Uh, why are some not convinced despite information from scientists? Um, great question, Cecilia. The answer is party ID and uh, identity politics. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the fact that there is data, scientific data that proves that the disease is deadly. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got something to do with the fact that people identify who they are and believe their their identity in general is based on the notion, very clearly based on the notion, that if they were to agree that that data was relevant, they would have to give up a part of their identity. So they're not fighting data. They're not fighting facts. They're protecting their identity. If their identity is based on a myth, there's not a lot you can really do 
it's not really up to you at that point, is it, right? They're fighting back against an idea. And this is where you need to understand within political rhetoric, know when it's about data and you're fighting data with data. The moment you start fighting identity politics with facts, you're going to lose. Always, please understand this. If you're fighting identity and emotions with data and facts, you're going to lose. This is also one of the reasons that a lot of people, when they have discussions um, with their family members over Thanksgiving, specifically conservative family members, they get so frustrated and so angry that their family members don't listen to them. Please understand, you are debating over each other. Like what you're bringing is oranges. What they're angry about are apples. None of you is actually talking to each other because you're not talking the same language. It's a completely different language. And that's what happens. So when you ask me a question like this, how can data serve to convince individuals? Honestly, data's got nothing to do with it. There's more to this story. The story is party identity and personal politics. People identify a certain way um, and based on the way that they identify, they either take data as a myth or science as a myth instead of taking it as a fact. And that's why it's so difficult, it's so hard. Um, because you want to debate facts and they want to debate emotions and it's next to impossible to debate emotions. And I hope that answers your question. I know it's a disappointing answer. I know it's so frustrating, but frankly, that's what it is. Um, and the last question I have Shahira from Dallas, Texas. Um, you want to know exactly what drove me to use Pakistan, Taiwan, Turkey as a framework for development and policy. Very simple. Um, I chose Pakistan because I worked in Pakistan. Um, I'm from Pakistan. I have spent a good part of my life working in Pakistan for USAID, World Bank, and the government of Pakistan. I've been an advisor to all of them for a significant period of time. Even to this day, I, I sit on the board of governors uh, for the Pakistan Institute for Development Economics. So frankly, Pakistan, because of that. Uh, I, I've been doing things there since I was very young. I was probably one of the youngest members um, on the five-year planning committee for the government of Pakistan. I became a member when I was 24. Uh, so Pakistan, because I've been doing this for a very long time there. Um, Turkey and Taiwan were more interesting. <clears throat> so I became interested in Turkey because I have Turkish friends. I became interested in Turkey even further because Turkey presented an opportunity to understand how things go south. Taiwan became interesting to me because I've been going to Taiwan since I was a child. Um, so my father was uh, and still is, and well, not as much now, because back in the day, my father had a lot of investments in, in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. Um, now, not as much because the economy has kind of shifted in the other direction. So back in the day, what used to happen was I would travel to... Northeast Asia on business trips with my dad. Um, and I had been going to Taiwan since I was a child. And one of the things that always 
fascinated me about Taiwan was the fact that here was a country which was a very harsh dictatorship. Uh, and for the longest period of time, it was one party rule. And the country had this beautiful economy, amazing people. And this country was doing so well. And instead of kind of, you know, sitting on their laurels, um, everything was changing. Like there, there was a very consistent move towards change and there was an encouragement to become better. Uh, the same political party that was in power was encouraging elections. They wanted uh, to have a multi-party democracy. And that was so unique to me. Um, as I grew, grew older, I, I just found it like, why you have everything? Why would you want to give it up? And that kind of got me interested in studying institutions and, and studying development. And that further helped me understand like, oh, Taiwan is, is a unique case. And then I started studying history of Taiwan. And turns out um, Taiwan and Turkey are probably more similar than any of you think. Um, they were both created by generals, um, military generals. Both of them were ideologues. Both of them were highly educated. Both of them spoke multiple languages. Both of them fought in other armies. Um, Ataturk from Turkey fought in the Ottoman army. Chiang Kai-shek fought in, with the British army alongside the Chinese army uh, or the Republic of China army. Um, during the Second World War, he fought against the Japanese, he fought against uh, even the Russians and the British. And both of these men had this vision of what they wanted. They wanted to leave a country that had their imprint and their personality as the foundation stone. And that's where Turkey and Taiwan start. It, both of the constitutions and both of these countries are imprints of the people who made them. Um, Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan and Ataturk in Turkey. And for me, it was fascinating because these countries had a very similar journey. Turkey's economy started doing really well as well around the 80s. Uh, the Taiwanese economy was on fire during the 80s. And then over a period of time, as we get into the 90s, Taiwan and Turkey both started trying to democratize. And the democracy was going fairly well in both these countries till the 1990s, late 1990s. And then in early 2000s, what happens is Taiwan goes on this tangent where it moves towards becoming a vibrant democracy over the next 20 years. And Turkey takes this other turn where it also becomes this beautiful, vibrant, tolerant democracy till 2008. And at that point of time, things start going south. And Turkey goes in a completely different direction, um, becomes a single party dictatorship, and Taiwan becomes this super vibrant democracy that is accepting of everyone, that has so much to offer to the planet. Um, they legalized same-sex marriage, and yet are very conservative when it comes to business. It, it was a beautiful mixture of these two countries and both of them being super similar in their trajectories. And then Pakistan, obviously, 
not because I know Pakistan well, it's because Pakistan has always been a pendulum. Pakistan is this beautiful case study that becomes a democracy every 10 years, and then every 10 years it becomes a dictatorship, and then a democracy again every 10 years. So there's a pendulum that Pakistan kind of offers you um, on every, <laughs> every 10 years or so where it goes from this side to this side. And it's important for me to understand, even to this day, how Turkey and Taiwan just went their own ways and Pakistan keeps going from here to here and here um, and how that has impacted the development and growth of both of these countries. Like The funny thing is, even though Turkey is a dictatorship and even though Taiwan was a dictatorship and became a democracy, both of their economies have been doing pretty well. Um, Turkey's economy is not doing as amazing as it used to be, and that's partly down to the fact that it's it's a dictatorship at this stage. Taiwan's economy has never stopped. It's just become stronger and stronger and stronger uh, over the years. Uh, but the fascinating thing to me is Pakistan's economy has kind of been swinging like a pendulum. So yeah, that's why I got interested in studying Pakistan, Taiwan, and Turkey, of all the countries that I could compare. Because to me, Pakistan was the case that went from one side to another side, and Turkey and Taiwan were two peas in a pod that just turned out completely differently, and I wanted to understand what led to all of that. Um, that being said, thank you so much, all of you, for giving me an opportunity to talk to you. Uh, please feel free to reach out I hope I answered your questions. If you need any more information or if you want to discuss more things, email me, tweet at me, do whatever you need to, and I'll get back to you um, as quickly as I can. Uh, thank you so much. And I, I would like to kind of acknowledge Dr. Uh, Aminazia for allowing me to do this. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and have fun, everyone. I appreciate the opportunity.